Plato, Michelangelo, Shakespeare, Emerson, and now, Toni Morrison. The Nobel laureate and esteemed author takes her place among those great thinkers, but on her own terms. We could take it slowly, or we could get insane. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On today's show, we commemorate the life of Toni Morrison and discuss her legacy around the world and at Grinnell. Shayna Benjamin brings Toni Morrison into the historical framework of black women's literature. Joanna Giebelhaus gives us an inside, personal look into Morrison through the documentary she produced and edited, and then President Kington wraps up the episode by discussing why he chose Morrison as the first name to adorn the walls of the new Humanities and Social Studies Center. That's coming up next, after I remind you that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Toni Morrison was born in Lorain, Ohio in 1931. Like all of us, she was the hero of her own story, the center of her own universe. But she also wrote stories about others, about black experiences. She imagined a new literary world beyond the white gaze, one that didn't need to appeal or explain anything to white audiences. Morrison's first novel, The Bluest Eye, was published in 1970. Her novel Song of Solomon won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 1977. She went on to publish 11 novels, as well as children's books and essay collections. While she was writing, she was also a single mother of two children, a professor, and an editor at Random House Publications, where she amplified other black voices as the first black female editor in fiction. Navigating a white male world was not threatening. It wasn't even interesting. I was more interesting than they were. I knew more than they did, and I wasn't afraid to show it. In 1988, Morrison won the Pulitzer Prize for Beloved, of which Angela Davis says, It was an extraordinary turning point in the history of this country, and I would say the history of the world, because she urged us to imagine people who were slaves as human beings, individuals with subjectivity, who also loved, who also had imaginations, even as they were subjected to the most horrendous modes of repression. We can never think about slavery in the same way. Morrison gained worldwide recognition when she received the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1993. Morrison died at the age of 88 in August of 2019, but her legacy will carry on. Grinnell recently acknowledged and honored that legacy by announcing Morrison's name as the first to be inscribed onto the walls of the new Humanities and Social Studies Center. So, what a perfect time to reflect on this literary giant and what she means to this country, the world, and Grinnell College. Shana Benjamin is a professor of English here at Grinnell. She's a literary critic and biographer who studies the literature and lives of black women. 
Recently, she's been working on a biography of another giant of black literature. Black feminist foremother and co-editor of the Norton Anthology of African American Literature, Nellie Y. McKay. She came back to campus to give a talk about Toni Morrison and why the placement of her name on Grinnell's walls is radical and significant. She talked about Morrison's place in the history of the development of black women's voices in literary and cultural spaces. I think that we're at a point now, I, I, you know, I marvel at the fact that um, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God is taught in high schools when um, my advisor came into the professoriate, it was out of print, and they passed around photocopies. So I think there's a sense that black women's literature has been a part of the conversation, and that's not true at all. It took a lot of effort and a lot of sacrifice to create a space for black women's voices, um, not just in academic spaces and literary spaces, when it comes to prizes and awards being recognized, um, when it comes to what we like to call citational praxis, that is um, who you credit Mm -hmm. for their intellectual labor. I think that black women are consistently overlooked in a wide variety of contexts and not cited appropriately for their foundational work in different arenas. So we're inscribing Tony's name on the walls of our newest academic building, and she's a radical departure from the names that are etched into Carnegie Hall. Shakespeare, Plato, Homer, Michelangelo, and the like. Mm-hmm. Where does she fit and how does she relate to them? Mm. Well, I guess I don't think about her relating to them at all. I think that she is wholly singular and exceptional in the way that she claimed her space as a black woman and refused to see her experience or her focus on the experiences of black women and girls, her attention to black communities, the way she deployed Black language and orality in her novels. Folks asked her if she found it limiting to be identified as a black writer, let alone a black woman writer. And she absolutely rejected that notion because she understood that her experience was vast and deep. And so I don't think about her in relation to these other folks. But I think that what she brings to the conversation is a focus on how a singular experience can be transformative, that by mining the details of your life and of the lives and the images that move you, that surround you, the stories that are not being told, the books you want to read, that haven't been written, for me, that's what she offers. Mm -hmm. That if it doesn't exist, make it so. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. When I was thinking about that, I was, you know, she is a radical departure from all those names. And that's that's precisely why, you know, it is significant and why she is significant. Um, But she is as as all writers are kind of like drawing from this larger, you know, literary tradition that we've been telling stories since we could tell stories. I was curious about, you know, where 
Tony's entrance into the literary world, like shaking things up, like what what did that do? Black writers have always immersed themselves in these so-called classics, if you will. And I say that with a question mark. <laughs> yes, I could hear the um, question. <laughs> in part because there was a lot of recovery work yet to be done when it comes to black writers. And so writing about Faulkner, so many scholars wrote about Faulkner in their dissertations or master's theses and such. And I think that having a connection to those writers and being able to both read for the quality of the prose, the craft, but also for the gaps and for the spaces that you see yourself filling with your own narratives um, just opens up a whole new world of possibility. So can you explain, you know, kind of the the idea that Toni Morrison wasn't necessarily fighting against but wanted to you know, kick to the side of the, the road of, of the white gaze in literature mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and how how Morrison subverted it and ran away from it in, yeah. in her work. Yeah, one of the things that my advisor noted in this syllabus that she put together, this was years and years ago. Um, first of all, Scholars of that generation weren't trained as African-Americanists. They were trained in American literature. They were trained in the classics and all of that. Um, but after that, they began training African-Americanists, which means that they also, at the same time they were teaching the literature, they were teaching strategies for understanding it, for being able to access it. One of the things that she notes in her syllabus is that black women are at the center of their lives, at the center of their worlds. And I think that there is a great misconception that our focus, our energies are always directed outward toward fighting against or rejecting white supremacy. And that's that hasn't been my experience as a black woman. And so I think that what Morrison reflects in her fiction, as well as her nonfiction, as well as in her essays, um, the centrality of that perspective and vision. And there's a wholesale discounting of how to frame or reframe or to explain certain details related to black life and culture for a white audience mm. because she does not presume that they are the primary focus. Yeah, that's not who she's writing. That's not who she's writing for. That's not who she's writing for. When did you first encounter Toni Morrison's work and and you know wow, we're thinking about we're yeah. thinking about her legacy okay for you I got a story for this so okay. when I was an undergraduate at Johnson C Smith University which is a historically black college in Charlotte North Carolina I was what was then called a Mellon Minority Undergraduate Fellow MMUF And as a Mellon Fellow, we had to identify a research project. And I decided to investigate the use of fairy tales in Toni Morrison's fiction. And so that was my primary introduction to the work of Toni Morrison. And I realized later, even though I was framing it in terms of fairy tales, I had just always been deeply invested in the power of myth and myth-making, 
thinking also about Song of Solomon and the flying Africans, and I think that there are lots of techniques, lots of tropes that link back to broader themes in Black culture. And so the role of myth and storytelling of these really extraordinary scenes and images where it's centered in reality, but there is kind of a mythic world of possibility. I think that's what always enchanted me about her work. Hmm. Just from a, a literary sense, it's it's profound, but also in terms of 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 being a black woman, it's mm-hmm. also you know when you extrapolate that out to society, it's also meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, what about her work beyond the books that she wrote? Because I was previously unaware of the extent of her other work as an editor and a teacher, and the voices that she amplified, not just her own, but bringing other people mm-hmm. into the mix and publishing other voices uh, that were not being heard. Yeah. I mean, she was, you know, I think that especially with the documentary, her work as an editor at Random House is becoming more and more well-known. The way that she gave black writers a platform for their work. Mm -hmm. But I also want to say something about an organization that I don't think has been getting enough light and credit in the midst of all these conversations about Morrison, and that is the Toni Morrison Society and Carolyn Denard in the way that she realized that there was no society devoted to the study of Toni Morrison's hmm. life and work. And she uh, organized the Toni Morrison Society years and years ago. There's a website that details its origins, and it's an active organization. And Toni Morrison was a regular participant. But this was about black women saying, we see you, Tony. Not all black, you know, it's not just black women who are participants, but these were the folks who founded this organization. And from what I understand, uh, Toni Morrison always had a very close relationship to that organization and um, was really supportive of its efforts. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I will make sure that I throw a link to that on, yes, on, on please the web page. Please um, do. So, you know, beyond you personally and beyond, you know, what Morrison has meant to many readers and, and other fellow writers, uh, in thinking about Tony's legacy moving forward now that she has her physical body has, has left mm-hmm. us, but her, mm-hmm. her words will remain for a long time. Um, what does it mean for you that Grinnell is, you know, inscribing her name in the walls. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, Tony's not going to be thinking about this on par with the Nobel Prize that she received, but mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it, it does mean something, and I want to know what it, what it means to you. It means a lot, and she has um, this essay, Rootedness, the Ancestor's Foundation, and she talks about the role of the ancestor in black communities, but also within her novels. And I think that um, in particular cosmologies, the notion of the ancestor as a guiding force is really, it's vital. It's it's important. It's different than an elder. An elder is living. An ancestor is someone who has transitioned. Um, So what I see is um, that inscription being a visual representation of her presence as ancestor. Mm. And so that's not just about her work in literary domains, 
but also in the way that she talked about race and difference, the way, as you mentioned, she talked about the white gaze. Um, of course, her essays, Playing in the Dark, which I've used in a course here at Grinnell, American Literature, the 19th century, the way that she talked about literary whiteness and literary blackness, her keen insight and the way that she was able to link the language of racial difference as something that is woven into the very fabric of the way we use words mm -hmm. and deploy description and the way that we seem to want to differentiate in the codes, sort of, uns well, they're not unspoken, but the linguistic codes that are used. I find all of that supremely important. And that inscription, to me, if used the right way, because it could just gather dust in the cracks and crevices, and it's, you know, the sort of thing that you see so regularly that it fades into the background. But I think that it would be missing out on an opportunity to imagine how that presence looks down and over that space. Is this inscription going to prompt folks to give black women credit for their intellectual labor, to consider greater diversity in the voices that are represented in the classes that are taught, in the secondary sources that are distributed to students as the scholars who are named and tapped as experts in the mm -hmm. field. Um, will colleagues begin reading the work of their black women mm -hmm. peers? Yeah and have really, you know, serious conversations about the work. Um, will that inscription serve as a reminder that black femmes, girls, and women need to experience a sense of belongingness here on campus? So I think that it's really ultimately what we make it. Yeah, it does strike me that... Um her her impact and her legacy could and should uh, ripple well beyond the the curriculum of the English department. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Shana, for um, talking about Tony and continuing to do the work that you do. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Shana Benjamin is a professor of English here at Grinnell. You can check out links to her scholarly work on our episode webpage, where you'll also find links to the Toni Morrison Society and an interview of Morrison by the subject of Professor Benjamin's book, Nellie McKay. Toni Morrison told stories for a living, but she was often hesitant to tell her own, successfully thwarting attempts of biographers. But she did agree to tell her story in a documentary film shortly before she died. Joanna Giebelhaus, an alum from the class of 1996, edited and produced the new documentary, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. She came back to Grinnell for a visit and to screen the movie at the Strand Theater in town. We sat down to talk about working with Toni Morrison and shaping her story. Giebelhaus spent three years on this project, researching and editing, and got to know Toni intimately through the process, from her personal papers, conversations with the people she impacted, and Morrison herself. Really, it's uh, it was such a an honor to work on this film. I uh -huh. mean, that's it was quite um, 
a profound, uh, not just professional experience, but also personal and life experience. So what, what an opportunity um, to have had. And I've been working on the film over the last three years. Um, I'm the pro I'm one of the producers of the film and the film's editor, but I also did all the research for the film, which mm. I just loved. <laughs> and that was just an incredible experience to have access to all of these archives around the country and Toni Morrison's personal archive yeah. and her papers at Princeton University. And it, I came to be involved in the project um, through the film's director, Timothy Greenfield Sanders. And he's also um, a friend of Toni Morrison's for 40 years. Mm -hmm. They first met in 1981, and he was her photographer. <laughs> so they, they developed a, a relationship through his photography. Uh -huh. And she uh, and Timothy collaborated on a film called The Blacklist for HBO in 2008. And... Um, I don't believe that Tony ever wanted to do a biographical film about herself. Uh -huh. She always, uh, I think she'd been approached for many years um, by various biographers, yeah. and she really resisted a biography. And, uh, you know, she was not interested in talking about herself. And she was a, quite a private woman. You know, she had a very active and generous public life. But, um, you know, her, her privacy was also very important to her. So... Her agreeing to participate in a documentary film about her was a really, um, really important uh, decision, and that's something that she trusted uh, Timothy to do as a director, and then, you know, he trusted um, his team. I worked had worked on another film for HBO um, that he had directed, so we had uh, collaborated on a previous film. Uh -huh. So that's how I got involved in this. Huh. And what was your, before you actually met her and started working on the project, what was your first, you know, maybe intellectual interaction with Toni Morrison, yeah. the author? It was at Grinnell. Okay. Yeah. It was uh, thinking and reading a, a little bit of Toni Morrison, but as a history major, I wasn't reading Toni Morrison in classes, but I had many friends who were reading her deeply. So there were conversations around some of her novels. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, there were a lot of um, there were people I knew who had read *The Bluest Eye* and um, the novel *Jazz*. But I would say my real intellectual interaction with her work really came from working on this film, mm. and, it, and it, in a much deeper way, and um, really spending time with uh, the material, doing the research, all of the backstory of her work on these novels, and then also all the context of them. It was a real, you know, immersive um, experience. And reading and rereading um, the novels with that um, information was really um, mm. quite an experience. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, one of the places where I worked in the filmmaking was in Lorraine, Ohio. Lorraine, Ohio is where Tony was born mm -hmm. in 1931. During the filmmaking, I went to Lorraine and spent quite a bit of time uh, working at the Lorraine Historical Society and working at the Lorraine Public Library and really working um, with some community members and trying to build the archival research mm -hmm. of the of the context of Lorraine, Ohio in the 30s yeah. and, and understanding Tony's context and figuring out ways we can represent that in the film. 
And so then reading The Bluest Eye, which is set in Lorain, Ohio, with that experience was just incredible. Mm. Yeah, really just like an even richer read, if that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine you got um, some very unique uh, and deep insights into Toni Morrison throughout three years of, of researching. Yeah, and and also just the incredible um, honor to spend time with her during yeah. the process and um, and spend time in her personal archives and scanning hundreds of photos um, in her home and, and at Princeton and in Lorraine. It was just really like a hands-on experience. That, yeah. yeah. How did, um, you know, maybe the, the Toni Morrison that you imagined while you were reading about her life or reading her books jive with the, the Toni Morrison that you worked with um, yeah. in making the film? I, I I think it's hard to put into words what a remarkable human being she was uh-huh. and her presence, to be in her presence was like something that, you know, I'll probably never experience again. And she was so generous in letting us in her home and um, turning her living room into a studio. Uh, but what, what just awed me about her is how um, she had this remarkable combination of being incredibly welcoming and um, generous and humble and self-assured at the same time, Mm. which is not a combination that I have encountered a lot. You know, just, you know, just such an authority on an expert on so many things. And but also this sort of sense of being a real down to earth, humble person, but incredibly, incredibly self-assured at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, A rare combination. A rare combination. Yeah. She was a very, very special, special (laughs) and such a consummate teacher. Mm. You know, I think I've read so many anecdotes about people, former students who had her in classes, and she was an advisor to so many and a teacher to so many. I mean, you can just, I can just imagine what a powerful teacher she was in the classroom. Yeah. So how did you, uh, from your position as producer and and, uh, editor, how did you kind of approach the framework of the story in terms of how you wanted to capture this gigantic life and this amazing woman and distill it into a, a two-hour documentary? Yeah, that is such a good question. <laughs> a daunting task. Such a daunting task. Oh my goodness, you could have we could have done a ten-hour series on Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. and it still wouldn't have been enough. Yeah. Right. I mean, in addition to her um, incredible biography, a biography in which she wore so many hats as a writer an editor, a teacher, a mother, uh, a friend. I mean, there are just so many important threads to her professional life. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you have all of her work, you know, all of her, you know, almost dozen novels and all of her nonfiction work and essays and lectures and speeches. I Mm -hmm. mean, you have um, really 50 years of an active public life Um, but the way the material is organized is thematically Mm -hmm. and that was really the 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 way to approach the trying to get a handle on the structure of the Mm -hmm. film and distilling what was going to be included and what was going to be important was really talking about what are the most important themes 
in her biography and the most important themes in her work. Mm -hmm. And from the perspective of her biography being a way to tell a larger story, a larger story of uh, America. Hmm. Are there, are there like angles on Toni Morrison's life or parts of her that you feel are are important to her story but that you didn't get to really tell in the documentary because you know you had to left a lot of things on the cutting room floor yeah there are so many things that were sadly left on the cutting room floor um you know it was painful to not be able to include everything you know that's one of the hard things about being an editor and you know (laughs) making these decisions and um you know these scenes dozens of scenes they become you know almost like your friends and uh you know but but ultimately the the litmus test for for those sometimes hard cuts it's all about what is serving and strengthening the story the most like Uh what is really important here as far as propelling a structure forward and, and propelling these themes forward there was a scene, an assembly of scenes actually, um, that we all loved on Tony's relationship with Shakespeare. Mm. And <laughs> she had a, a profound relationship and reverence for Shakespeare. And it was just fascinating to hear her talk about that. Yeah. And uh, and she went on um, and collaborated with the theater director, Peter Sellers, and they did this wonderful um, work on Othello, but mm. for Tony, she did her own telling of Othello from about Desdemona and from the point of view of the women in the play. Uh-huh. So the story of Desdemona and her relationship with Barbary, her slave, and it's just incredible. But we were trying so hard to figure out how we could put this um, beautiful story, an important story in the film, but there just wasn't there wasn't room for it. So uh-huh. that was a, a painful cut, but I think an important cut for the film. But it, luckily, that's um, in the bonus material on the DVD. Okay, nice. So how did you um, approach trying to tell the story of this very important figure in black history um, without you know being a part of that community necessarily? Yeah, thank you for that question. That's a... Uh, Well, the white gaze is a central um, tenet of what Tony was tackling, Mm -hmm. and I'd say what she she um, what she broke through as a um, in her in her literature, and Tony's a um, commitment to writing beyond the white gaze. I mean, she says in the film. You know, that there was, like Jimmy Baldwin would say, there was this little white man on her shoulder. And what mm. she wanted to do was knock knock him off, mm-hmm. right? So this idea of the white gaze was something that was very present um, for us in the film and wanting to be very conscious of that. Um, our film team was very diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a lot of diversity on our team. So that was something that was really important to us and yeah. something that we thought about and, you know, really worked to be conscious of um, and uh, and try to make a film that honored um, Tony's mission to uh, go beyond that white gaze. Yeah. But, you know, something I'd say that for white people, we all have to work really hard to do in, mm-hmm. in the society. Yeah. How much of a role did um, Tony have in 
in the structure of the film. I, I get the sense that she was maybe a little hands-off and maybe a reluctant interviewee to begin with. So I don't imagine that she was, you know, there deciding what was going to make the cuts. Um, but I don't know. Tell me otherwise. You're right about that. <laughs> okay. You're right. Yeah, she was very hands-off yeah. um, and was not involved in the filmmaking um, beyond her incredible you know, generosity of sitting for mm -hmm. two sets of interviews. And she didn't see anything along the way. I mean, we kept her apprised of how mm -hmm. things were going in a general way, but uh, she only saw the film when it was done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that was that was something that we really respected and, and uh, were excited about. Yeah. What was her reaction to the film? You know, when we took the film to show her, we weren't... Uh, we were very nervous, as you can imagine. <laughs> <I> can imagine <laughs> you yeah. can only imagine how <laughs> nerve-wracking that was. Uh, <laughs> didn't quite know how she would feel, uh, if she would want to watch it all, to uh -huh. be honest. You know, it's a two-hour film. And, yeah. Uh, she watched every frame of it and every scene uh, carefully and closely, and she enjoyed it. And at the end of the film, she said... I like her, which in talking about herself. Yeah. So that we thought that was um, really something, and that was a really meaningful moment for all of us. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, <laughs> we don't all get the opportunity to have a, a documentary made about ourselves. That's right, <laughs> and we were so. I mean, you know, we're still mourning uh, her her passing. Yeah. And uh, as we, you know, have been reflecting on. Um, the filmmaking experience and our and so grateful for our time with her and her incredible body of work. You know, we're just so glad that she got to to see it mm -hmm. when she was living, and she um, I think most importantly that she got to tell her own story. Yeah, right. So the film is direct to camera. Tony's looking straight at you, mm -hmm. and she is telling her story. She has her. Um, it's her word on her life, yeah. which I think is really wonderful. Yeah, and that drives the the film. But there's also a lot of other people that you interviewed, and yeah. you know, what was it like working with people like Angela Davis and some of these other great figures, and and hearing about Tony in their words? It was really incredible. I mean, the assembly of Tony's peers <laughs> and scholars. We called it sort of Tony's list. You uh -huh. know, it was just. It was one incredible interview and uh, incredible um, person after the next. You know, Hilton Alls, Angela Davis, Farrah Griffin, mm. Peter Sellers. I mean, uh, Paula Giddings, Davi Carrasco. Um, these are all just great thinkers and scholars and artists. And everybody who participated in the film, they were doing it for... Toni Morrison mm -hmm. and for the reverence for her work and the impact her work has had on them as intellectuals, as artists, and understanding the just the reach of her impact on so many was just um, really something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you kind of personally, after spending so much time working with her and, and learning about her, um, what does she kind of mean to you in your life? Hmm. 
the filmmaking and thinking about Tony and helping to tell her story has been literally a part of my daily life for three years. Yeah. So it's <laughs> super, you know, super enmeshed and, uh, you know, entrenched, I would say, in the experience. But the impact on my craft, I think, has been huge. Yeah. You know, I think I learned a lot as an artist from Tony. Mm. You know, I would say... Uh, as an editor, what I came to really learn about her is she was the ultimate editor. <laughs> you know, she worked as an editor professionally before she was a full-time writer. She yeah. was editing at Random House. But she was a brilliant editor. I mean, I could feel that and see that in her interviews that she was consciously, you know, I felt like she was giving me breadcrumbs as an editor of like, you know, you can go this way in the edit, you can go this way, or here's a possible ending here, or here's a possible way to get out of that story. I mean, there were there were so many breadcrumbs mm. <laughs> of connections, yeah. you know, as I said, there was a, a real thematic approach to the filmmaking. And there were pieces all, all throughout her interviews and layers, just like her literature, right? Yeah. Just so layered and expressive. It was a transformative experience to mm. be in her company, to, to, to um, spend so much time learning about her work and just being uh, so deeply inspired, not just by what she accomplished, but how she lived her life, mm -hmm. right? And, what, and her fearlessness and her career and just sticking to uh, the work that she wanted to do, regardless of the, the pressures around her and the expectations and the bigotry or whatever it was or sexism that she just, you know, stuck to her stories and did her work the way she wanted to do it. Uh -huh. what, a, what a force. And I'd say just a, a genius in her work, but I, just such a humanist. Mm. And I can't think of a, uh, a more important and impactful voice uh, in America and in the world um, other than her. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and the impact, you know, the impact that she's had on so many other writers and so many other thinkers and artists, you know, in the film, we have the film is infused with the art and music by... Uh, I think there are f over 55 artworks by African-American artists, contemporary mm. artists, some artists um, who have passed away, Charles White, Rashid Johnson, Kara Walker. Yeah. The opening title sequence is done by a contemporary artist, Micheline Thomas. Lorna Simpson has work in the film. And all of these artists all, all said, you know, I want to participate. Yes, you have permission to use, mm -hmm. you know, our artwork in the film. And they all did this because of Toni Morrison, yeah. because of the impact that um, that her work and her voice had in their art. So I just um, I think that the you know the impact of her work and her legacy is just one that is um, it's so important to to continue to recognize and talk about and to explore. And I hope that that more people will be doing doing that exploration, you know, because her impact is just huge, yeah, important, yeah. And it's exciting for you, I imagine, to be able to to bring that back and, and show the movie here in Grinnell at the Strand. It is. It's really. It's just wonderful. I I couldn't be more. Um, 
you know, delighted to be here and honored. And just there's something really um, meaningful about coming back to Grinnell and being on campus and being in town and, and sharing the film with the community. I hope I hope the film will um, will help spark more dialogue here yeah. at Grinnell. I mean, yeah. I think that's something that um, Tony um, kind of sets this um, stage for people to enter conversations um, around race, um, conversations uh, around American history that you know really need to happen in communities like Grinnell, communities like, you know, big communities like New York, wherever it is, these conversations, I think, at a grassroots level are really important. And I'm hoping the film can continue to be part of that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Johanna, for coming and sharing the film and spending a lot of time working on it to make it happen and um, for talking to me and sharing it on the podcast. All right. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you. Joanna Giebelhaus is a Grinnell grad from the class of 1996. The documentary, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, premiered at Sundance last year, is out on Magnolia Pictures, and will be on the PBS Master Series program in June. You can find the trailer and learn more about the film, as well as see some of the amazing artwork that went into the film, on our webpage. In 1905, Iowa College, which would soon become known as Grinnell College, opened Carnegie Library. On the building are inscribed 11 names of great thinkers from many years past. Caesar, Isaiah, Emerson, Shakespeare, Dante, Homer, Plato, Michelangelo, Darwin, Goethe, Galileo. It was while looking at those names, and with the new building in mind, that President Kington got the idea for some new names. When I first came here, I remember walking past that building and looking at those names and thinking, you know, that it was interesting that these names were homogenous. And and I don't think that anyone necessarily would argue with any of the names up there uh-huh. in terms of people who had an impact. Although Isaiah, I'm not sure about. I, the I can confess that I I I <laughs> when I ran across that name, I was like, you know, I that doesn't mean anything to me. I'm not going to uh-huh. lie. And I will say also that, um, I mean, I noted that they're all white men. Uh-huh. There's a caveat that some of those people lived before the current notions of race were even around. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, I like to put that little caveat there. But still, as we now define race and even gender, um, it was a pretty homogenous group there. Mm-hmm. And it was probably an incomplete group in 1909 or whenever, it was, when it was done. Um, but I remember thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if we could add some names? Yeah. And, and I took, uh, I don't use executive privilege a lot, <laughs> but I did this time um, in deciding that I was just going to choose the first name. Uh-huh. Um, partly because I thought it, it was after uh, Tony Morrison died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, okay, hard to argue <laughs> yeah. with, with her name being up there. And I thought it would be a good way to start the conversation. Yeah. You know, many other schools, many other schools are having these very difficult conversations about names coming down. Mm-hmm. Names of buildings and engraving and programs and schools and lots of pulling off of names. And I like that that hasn't been the focus here. Mm. 
Maybe it's a reflection of nice Midwestern understatement that we don't have a lot of names, although we haven't done a deep dive on all the names around. <laughs> I'm uh-huh. sure that if we, if we look deeply, we'd find unpleasantness. Um, but, but I like the idea of, of adding, mm-hmm. adding names. Yeah. And, and I keep pushing this, and we'll see whether it actually happens. I, I'm hoping that we will intentionally leave some of the spaces blank. Yeah. Because the notion that any era or time has sort of has figured it all out is absurd. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important message to send to students that, you know, your name might, might get up there mm-hmm. <laughs> if you do something worthy. Uh, and, uh, and I thought Toni Morrison would be a great conversation starter. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, at one point, someone had suggested we, I got into this, uh, a, co- a conversation, a discussion, argument <laughs> about um, whether it should be her full name. Yep. I was just talking about this with someone today. And I said, no. You know, <laughs> if Darwin can be up there with his last name, then Morrison can be up there with her last name. And uh, so I, I think I won that argument. There you go. So personally for you, when did you first kind of interact with Toni Morrison? When did, when did she come into your world? Yes. And, and what, does, you know, what does she mean to you now? I think it was probably 1978. I was 18. I was in my equivalent first year of medical school. I was uh-huh. in, at Michigan, University of Michigan. And I was in the library of East Quad. And a, a, a friend who was, who was an African-American woman, medical student, was reading The Bluest Eye. Hmm. And for some reason, we ran into each other. And I said, that's an interesting title. And, and she just said, oh, yeah, you should know who this is. And, and I'd never heard of Toni Morrison. Um, and I should have, but I, because, you know, I, I was reasonably informed about literature, African-American literature in particular. Um, but, um, but I remember um, she told me about it, and I bought the book, and I started it, and I found it too painful to read. Hmm. I literally couldn't finish it. And, and I recently went looking, because I don't throw away books, <laughs> <laughs> and I rarely give them away. And I went looking for the paperback, and I think I still have it somewhere in my house, that paperback. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, um, I, I think I then read Sula. And then when I was in grad school, I was visiting a friend in New York, African-American journalist, and he said, you know, I'm going to see this reading with Tony Martin. You should come with me. So we went to, it was in a church one of the big churches there. And I think she was reading from Beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking at the time that she seemed insecure. Like she she clearly was uncomfortable with the reading and was sort of apologizing and hesitating. And and I didn't know anything about her really beyond sort of her books. I, and um, I thought wow, that's interesting that she's sort of insecure. And now I realize that that was a complete misread. It was uh-huh. that she's a perfectionist, sort of. <laughs> and I think she, she wasn't finished. And, and it somehow, my guess is that she made a commitment to this reading mm-hmm. and sort of felt obligated to do it, but was clearly uncomfortable reading yeah. from it. And, and, um, and knowing more about her from various sources now, I, can, I think my guess is she was probably just 
she didn't think that it was ready to be read, but she felt obligated to read at least something. Uh-huh. And, uh, um, but yeah, so I saw her that one time in person, and I, I never met her. Um, but I did remember later, there was an interview of her in the New York Times Magazine. And I remember reading it, and it was about, it was a, the title was something about how Toni Morrison was not her name, sort of. Or it was Chloe mm-hmm. Woodford. And and she was she told a story of how she got how that her name all on her publications Toni Morrison was there when that really just sort of happened through a sequence I think a one of her colleagues who was the editor sort of knew her that way so put that name on but uh, and maybe the may not have even known that that wasn't her first name mm-hmm. um, but um, what I remembered about the interview two things I remember that were really important. The first thing was that um, she was talking about how, like, her mother had been a uh, had belonged to a, uh, one of these book clubs where you get books once a month or something, and how she uh, how that was such an uh, that was an unusual thing, and that was a lot of money, but it yeah, she got these books that she read, and and she talked about how sort of so much how influenced she was by sort of the great literature out there and the the interviewer asked well how did you deal with racial stereotypes in all these pieces of literature and i i love it. her answer was some version of well i just sort of skipped over those parts <laughs> these books were like they they transformed me but i just skipped over those parts and uh and i remember reading Oh, so that and thinking. Oh, so that's how you do it, <laughs> because you know I, I've been struggling with this—the fact that so often you'll be reading a great piece of literature and then you get to something and you go, "Damn!" Yeah. Like, you know, the, you hit the brakes. It's like this crash. It was something I was reading recently, Agatha Christie, something, mm-hmm. something it's on vacation I was reading, and it's like again, it was like you're tooling along, reading this sort of light mystery, and then bam. This anti-Semitic, uh, and, and then a bam, a racist. I mean, just sort of you think, oh God, now to unpack all of that. <laughs> and, sort mm-hmm. of, and I liked her solution that you sort of skip over that, mm. um, and uh, that was really important to me. The other thing was that she was asked, so how did you do all this work when you're raising kids, a single parent, and all this? And she sort of said, well, I sort of made a list of sort of things that I had to do and things that sort of that were sort of nice to do. The things I had to do were sort of raise my kids and like write, mm-hmm. and everything else was like secondary. Yeah, um, which was pretty impressive. Yeah, um, I didn't know and didn't really think about uh, her influence beyond the the works that she's written. You know, like as a great author, mm-hmm. I I understood Toni Morrison's impact, but the more that I've talked to people, the more I've thought about how her work extends so far beyond the realms of just literature Mm -hmm. and thinking about it in the context of like an institution like Grinnell and and all other academia bringing and highlighting black women's voices and Mm -hmm. making them a part of the canon. And I think Mm -hmm. Makiba Levan at the talk yesterday was talking about how, you know, building a canon of scholarly work is like empire building Mm -hmm. and, and it's important to get those voices in and respected. Um, so what do you think is the importance to an institution like Grinnell of having having Morrison not just as a name on a building, but kind of 
how do we like access her spirit and like channel that as we move forward? Well, I mean, one, I think she she was a a real she was an intellectual who was grounded in real life, hmm. yeah. and and could make this link between real life and very deep thought, sort of, you know. Uh, and I and I think that that's an important message to, that you know you don't have to think of intellectual um, pursuits as being somehow separate from life, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I also think um, she had lo- she just had tons of lots of of just great messages. I love the fact, like, and this was I think it was in the documentary when she was asked, you know, by Dick Cavett, you know, do you feel like you're reduced when mm. you're called a black writer? Yeah, and, and said, a black woman writer. Black woman, yeah. and she said, no, like you know, that's what I am. What I'm what I'm annoyed by is asking being asked the question. Mm. <laughs> that's what I'm annoyed by. But but it's interesting because some people say, oh well, she. You know, in some cases, she didn't like being called a black writer. She was just a writer. But she also said, you know, I'm okay being a black writer because I don't think that's a reduction. I don't think that's in any way a limited. That's what I yeah. am. And, and I don't see it as a reduction or, or constriction of some way. It's, yeah. It's, so I don't mind being called a you know, black woman writer because that's what I am. Right. What The problem is when you see that as being somehow a reduction, you yeah. see that as somehow being less than complete. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, I also think, I mean, I'd love her, um, her Nobel Prize speech. Mm. Have you read it? No, I have not. You should read it. It's very short. It's, um, it's beautiful. And there are a whole lot of just wonderful pieces in there about, um, like one section, it was, she talks about the Tower of Babel. You know, and raises this issue. So maybe, maybe the problem of the Tower of Babel wasn't that there were all these languages and there was this chaos of language. It was that no one's taking the time to actually learn those languages. Mm. And, and maybe if you had, people had, you know, thought about that, then maybe you wouldn't have had to try to build this this path to heaven. You know, you could sort of like maybe it would be down here with people. But no one figured out, no one paid much attention to trying to learn those other languages. Yeah. Which I thought was, I mean, she had a, she had a remarkability to take, and that was a great example of taking something that everyone's heard about and it has mm. this whole sort of narrative. Yeah, you know what the story is. Yeah, and, and say, well, maybe, maybe we need to think a little bit differently about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I think she, that, that, that ability to be an engaged intellectual was pretty was pretty amazing. Yeah, um, and uh, and the great thing about the documentary was that it's it's just so apparent that she was brilliant. You know, mm. like you didn't and and you think like how could anyone have sort of doubted that? Yeah, <laughs> but clearly, you know, there were many people who didn't think that for a long time. Yeah, you know, and 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 didn't think that she was worthy and and to read those and to hear those reviews of early reviews Mm -hmm. it just it's it's like nails on a chalkboard Mm. you know to hear you know well don't you too bad that she's restricting herself to black life yeah like and and it was so it was so obvious and transparent you think god what do those people think now yeah (laughs) do they are they ashamed right are they embarrassed that they thought that way then many of them are probably have gone to glory yes uh, <laughs> but uh the recent collection of her 
essays and there's a, 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 the latest publication, okay. the last one. In it, there's um, her eulogy for James Baldwin. Mm. And she spoke at his funeral, and she was a friend of his. And, uh, and she, it was a great little piece in there where she said um, something about how he demanded that she sort of have these sort of high standards, these high moral standards, but that it had to be on this base of mercy. Mm. You know, that, you know, this tension between, you know, having high standards, but also being, you know, forgiving. But the book is full of lots of great writings, of uh-huh. course, including the Nobel Lecture. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I will check it out and, and direct others to do the same. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for taking the time to, to talk about Tony and her legacy, and thanks for choosing her as, as the first person to uh, adorn the, the new walls. Thank you for asking. I, I hope there are a thousand conversations like this because of that. That was President Reynard Kington. You can read more about the inscribing of Morrison's name on the new building and see photos from the ceremony on our webpage. And that'll do it for this week's episode. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski and Pottington Bear. The audio clips you heard from Tony Morrison and Angela Davis come from the documentary. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show and drop a review on there while you're at it. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. <laughs>